We're continuing with the uh, section on the hindrances. This is um, Lumpocha's <coughs> teachings and reflections on uh, uh, the five uh, Nivarana. So we did uh, sense desire and ill will, and the next one is sloth and torpor. The third of the five hindrances, sloth and torpor, occurs most readily in a mind habituated to a high level of stimulation. In such cases, focusing on a single, unexciting object, like the breath, tends to induce feelings of boredom, followed by dullness. It can lead to meditators losing their awareness altogether, sitting with a head bobbing up and down or slumped on their chest. This hindrance also afflicts meditators who indulge in the relaxed feelings that occur with the elimination of coarse mental agitation. In its more subtle forms, the hindrance can manifest as a state of mind that is calm, but stiff and unwieldy. On one occasion, the Buddha compared the mind overcome with sloth and torpor to a prisoner in a dark and stuffy dungeon, and at another time likened it to fresh water choked by water plants. So that's uh, uh, in particular a, um, uh, a, a notable feature. When people first start to meditate, then often the mind is so busy and active, uh, kind of hot and agitated, that the idea of being dull is, is almost impossible. And uh, <clears throat> then after a few weeks or a few months when the, of, uh, say, focused effort and um, say working hard with the mind, then the, the major... So agitating dif- uh, problems and issues uh, uh, like uh, anger and restlessness and, um, and sense desire have cooled down a bit. Everything gets calm to the point where <laughs> the mind just, just shuts down. Because uh, it, uh, as he says, it, and it's very, I think, very insightful in saying that uh, it's dependent a lot on, uh, on the mind's habituation to stimulation. So... It can be the, the stimulation is having a lot of restlessness or lust or anger or uh, aversion, fear, and so on. So when that, that calms down, then on an instinctual level, what happens is that they say, well, there's nothing to get excited about, nothing to get worried about, nothing to get irritated with. Okay, you know, nap time. So we just, uh, on, a, on a natural instinctive level, uh, as animals, you know, there's nothing to eat, nothing's, uh, nothing's dangerous, um, nothing's threatening our, our living space. Okay, take a nap. You know, switch off, and and um, uh, it's uh, uh, ordinary for us to think uh, and to uh, well, not to think, but to to be conditioned in that way. And so that uh, it's uh, often uh, a, a six months or a year, maybe a year and a half into uh, sort of focused uh, effort in meditation that these kind of issues can can come up. Also, one of the uh, the aspects of it is that dullness can be quite peaceful, but uh, it's it's not a peace that's liberating. It's a peace of numbness. It's a it's so that quality of quietness or just being switched off. There can be a sense of relief, like having a good sleep, like you know that the, there is a, a kind of of quietness or peacefulness there. But it, it's important that that's not a, a liberating peace, and that. Um, and so it can be uh, quite attractive. Um, so that's what, uh, what uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedha would often call a water buffalo equanimity, or water buffalo peacefulness of just the... the um, uh, there, there's a certain inner quietness, but it's, it's because of 
the mind being in a very um, numb or, or dull state. It's not a, a, a kind of peace that's based on, on clarity and uh, a non-attachment. It's a peace based on an absence of a power supply. You know, <laughs> the, the, the lights are switched off so it's dark, so the, the whole thing shuts down. For the monastics at Wat Bapong, the simple and repetitive way of life, free of most of the grosser kinds of sensual stimulation, reduced the likelihood that their minds would react against the discipline required in formal meditation. Lumpur's regular reminders to sustain mindfulness and sense restraint in all postures were thus aimed at reducing the gap between the meditator's awareness in periods of formal meditation and in daily life. Monks were encouraged to observe factors that increased or decreased the tendency towards laziness and mental dullness. Food intake was one obvious vari- variable. Here Lumpur Chai is speaking. If you find yourself sleepy every day, try to eat less. Examine yourself. As soon as five more spoonfuls will make you full, stop, then take water until just properly full. Go and sit. Watch your sleepiness and hunger. You must learn to balance your eating. As your practice goes on, you will feel naturally more energetic and eat less. But you must adjust yourself. And uh, if I remember correctly, that's actually a, a piece of advice from the Buddha, that, uh, that uh, judging when five more spoonfuls will make you full, and then stopping, putting the spoon down, and then drinking water to sort of fill the last gap. And that's the, the Buddha's own advice. So you might think, well, how do you know when five more spoonfuls will be enough? Do you have a kind of meter? There's probably, can you get an app on your iPhone to sort of measure? But um, if you pay attention, it's, it's interesting. Um, somehow the body has its own intelligence and it kind of knows how much food that, that you need according to the weather, according to what, what your work you're doing. Um, and the body has its own sensitivity, has its own app. Uh, that uh, if you're paying attention then, uh, uh, you know, and only eating one mouthful at a time, then uh, it, you, uh, uh, it is possible to discern the, the point at which you recognize, okay, yeah, that's enough. Uh, that, that's uh, uh, that's the, uh, the, the full amount that I need today. And so that uh, the, uh, we'll probably get onto that in other areas of the teachings, but uh, one of the most helpful ways of establishing mindfulness of eating is uh, not eating in slow motion or um, just determining I'm only going to eat 30, uh, 30 mouthfuls or 40 mouthfuls of food today. But rather, uh, an extremely simple method is uh, you have a spoon or whatever utensil you're using. When you put a mouthful of, of food, you put uh, food into your mouth, you put the spoon down and then you don't pick it up again until you finish the mouthful of food that you're eating. This might seem like, well, I, I do that all the time. In fact, it's quite rare for people to do that. It's usually the, uh, the, the spoon is in the hand, and while you're eating one mouthful, you're lining up the next, uh, uh, you, or, or you're already digging in for the next mouthful. And if the food is really uh, delicious and exciting, then you, you're, you've got one, um, uh, you've got the mouthful that you're working on, you've got the heaped up spoon, and then your eye is searching for the one after the next spoonful. You've got sort of a whole three-layer program going like, yeah, there's this, then after this, and then after this, and um, so uh, a very uh, uh, say simple and helpful method is 
just eat one mouthful at a time. Yeah, again, you don't, have, you don't have to eat in slow motion or do anything in a, a, a sort of forced or weird or uncom- uncomfortable way, but just uh, put in a mouthful of food, put the spoon down, and just eat the food that you're eating. And when you've finished um, all the food in your mouth, and, and again, that's described as that's how the Buddha used to eat, that he, would, he wouldn't take a, a second mouthful until he'd finished, he'd swallowed all of the, the food in the, in the first mouthful, and just finish that mouthful, and then when it's gone, then pick up the spoon, take another mouthful, and then put the spoon down, pay attention to this one. And uh, um, it's, it's remarkable how uh, there's a, um, uh, a clarity in the system. And so that then, as he says, if, you, if you're really paying attention and you know, okay, just uh, a little bit more would be enough to make me full, okay, put the spoon down, take up the glass of water and finish off with water. Speaking of which, Lumpur gave many exhortations aimed at inspiring in his disciples the wholesome desire to strive for freedom from defilement and to realize inner liberation. It was bearing this wholesome desire, Dhamma Chanda, in mind that played the largest role in guarding against the hindrance of sloth and torpor. Without cultivating this strong aspiration to penetrate the Four Noble Truths, meditators going through periods of emotional turmoil or strong defilement could find their minds retreating into dullness during meditation as a means of anaesthetizing their mental pain. The weekly all-night sittings were opportunities for monks at Wapapong to come face-to-face with drowsiness and to be given no choice but to seek for skillful means to overcome it. Emerging from a period of drowsiness after a steady refusal to give in to it could be an empowering and even rapturous experience. The patience accumulated by a regular practice of working with drowsiness was not an immediately obvious benefit, but many monks would acknowledge that over a period of months and years it became increasingly evident. But again, that's a, a helpful observation that when you, you have a lot of painful mind states and the, you're just sort of dealing with um, uh, just either frustration or annoyance or restlessness the, um, uh, and there's not much very interesting or exciting around you the easiest, thi- the easiest thing to do to stop feeling that pain is just switch off and so often um, it's the case for many people who have a lot of difficulties and uh, struggles with, with dullness in meditation the main issue is not actual lack of sleep or you know, physical tiredness at all. The, the main issue is negative mind states and often self-hatred, that sense of, of self-criticism. Because if you're awake and paying attention to the mind, it's saying, you're no good, you know, I'm no good, I'm no good, I'm no good, I'm no good. Uh, this is awful, this is terrible, I'm a, I'm a useless person. So rather than listening to the inner critic going on and on, the easiest thing to do is just turn the volume down, switch off, and, and so uh, to, to blank out. So um, in that respect, uh, uh, I found this is, for quite a number of people, is helpful. If you get the sense that the, uh, the cause of dullness in your meditation is indeed that, that kind of self-criticism or negativity or negative mind states, then uh, rather than doing things to specifically kind of energize or, or or try, try to liven up the system, often the most helpful thing is developing more kindness and forgiveness for yourself and to, 
and just generate more of a, an accepting quality of your own, uh, your own character, your own nature, and that by cultivating more of that quality of loving kindness, metta, particularly towards your own character, your own, your own life, your own mind, then that can take away a lot of the, the causes of why the mind wants to switch off, why it wants to just be um, anesthetized, like a, you know, getting a, a painkiller that will just uh, take that, that ache away. The, um, the all-night sittings here, we have them up until, we still have them on uh, the moon days, here uh, we keep them going up until midnight. Uh, we leave the the temple uh, doors open so people can stay on longer. Um, and quite a number of monasteries uh, they have different routines, but often the um, the uh, all night sittings are at least all, uh, if not all night, most of the night. And so uh, usually you'd have the morning chanting at about uh, three or three thirty in the morning, and then have. Um, a final uh, uh, sitting. Sometimes you draw things to a close at four o'clock and then have a bit of a break for an hour or two and then have the arms round following after that. Sometimes it would just go straight through from the end of the meditation through until uh, you just do ring the bell at the end of the meditation and get your robes and your bowl ready to go out on the arms round afterwards. But um, uh, the, the purpose of those kind of uh, all-night sittings is... Uh, um, and also getting up early in the morning is very much to work with these sort of drowsy and dull states of mind. Uh, I've, uh, uh, usually when I'm reading about this or talking about this area, I recount a, a dialogue I had. I think I, was, I think I was a layman. I don't even think I was an Anagarika at the time. But uh, in the very early days at Wat Pananachat when I was there, and uh, I, I'm not a morning person by nature, I'm a, more of a night owl, so if I have my own choices, I'm, I'll be up till sort of midnight or one or two in the morning, um, and getting up later. Uh, and so um, when I first arrived at the Wat Pananachat, and they said the morning bell goes at three o'clock, <coughs> and we meet at uh, three thirty for the chanting, I thought they must have some kind of different clock. You know, they must be like the third watch of the night, you know, or three bells or something. No, no, three o'clock means three o'clock. So up until that point, uh, three, uh, three o'clock was a late night rather than an early morning. And the concept of actually getting up at three in the morning was completely unheard of to me. Anyway, so after uh, a couple of weeks there, I remember talking to Ajahn Pasna. He was one of the junior monks at, at Wat, uh, Wat Pananachat at that time. Ajahn Pasna, who was um, co-abbot with me in, uh, in the States in, in Abhayagiri Monastery. I said, you know, rather than getting up so ridiculously early in the morning and having this morning meditation at half past three or four o'clock when everyone is, is you know, half asleep or three quarters asleep, why don't we instead you know, have the arms round, come back from the arms round, then have the meditation after the arms round and have the meal a bit later? Because then, you know, you've, you've, been, you've been up and about, you've had some exercise, it's broad daylight, uh, the mosquitoes haven't started, um, and then after the after the meditation, then you have the meal. Isn't that a good idea? He said, "You're being reasonable." <laughs> so, um, so, so my first thought was, "What's wrong with being reasonable?" He said, but the point he was you know, that he then made is like it's not about being reasonable, but. Um, 
these kind of routines uh, and the, the all-night sittings or, or getting up early in the morning to sit you know, here we positive you know a, we almost have a lie-in until five o'clock you, know? you can uh, <coughs> you can take it very easy here the um, the uh, the point is to be um, learning how to rouse energy and to when the mind is inclined towards drowsiness or switching off to to learn how to uh, say, uh, bring f- bring up uh, uh, the quality of virya energy and effort, um, the right effort of samavayamo, and to uh, when nothing is particularly exciting or interesting around you, to to say, br- uh, train yourself to to be bringing up that that energy and alertness, <coughs> sort of guided by and and motivated by uh, your own interest, your own um, commitment. And as he says, sometimes emerging from a period of drowsiness after a steady refusal to give into it can be an empowering and even rapturous experience. And that, that it, uh, despite what some of your experience might be, it can be that way that you can find yourself um, getting really, really sleepy and very dull and just uh, getting uh, um, sort of drawn into dull, sleepy states over and over again. But then. Um, uh, after a while, it it passes on, and you find yourself quite alert and and bright. That sleepy state had sort of done its thing and had passed over, and then you can find yourself quite uh, quite uh, energized and, and bright afterwards. And so, that tells you that it's not some kind of absolute quality, but rather it's just a, a particular state. And that um, uh, again, uh, Lumposomato would often talk about that um, investigating drowsiness or sleepiness because you know, it's, it's difficult because the, the means whereby you would investigate it are not really so easily available to you. <laughs> uh, you haven't got that much brightness. But um, as uh, Lumpur would often point out, that uh, you, know, you can be aware of dullness. You can be, uh, that, that quality of awareness can know those dull, drowsy feelings and... Uh, know it just as it is, without without being drawn into it or getting swept along by it. So to continue. Nevertheless, whenever monks were pushing themselves physically, during monastery work projects, for example, and particularly in periods of hot and humid weather, sloth and torpor could still be a major obstacle. Lumpur gave a number of practical tips. So here, yeah, Lumpur Chai is speaking. There are many ways to overcome sleepiness. If you're sitting in the dark, move to a lighted place. Open your eyes. Get up and wash your face or take a shower. If you're sleepy, change postures. Walk a lot. Walk backwards. The fear of running into things will keep you awake. If this fails, stand still. Clear the mind and imagine it is full of daylight. Or sit on the edge of a high cliff or a deep well. You won't dare sleep. If nothing works, then just go to sleep. (laughs) Lay down carefully, try to be aware until the moment you fall asleep. Then as you awaken, get right up. Don't look at the clock or roll over. Start practicing mindfulness from the moment that you wake up. Continuity of practice was essential. If meditators allowed sloth and torpor in its guise as laziness or reluctance to hold them back, they were lost. They had to develop a consistent effort, impervious to passing moods. Again, Lumpur Chas speaking here. When you feel diligent, practice. When you feel lazy, practice. 
And I can speak from personal experience that sitting on the edge of a cliff does indeed help to uh, rouse um, uh, alertness. As I said, I'm not, I'm not by... I actually, for the first 30 years, it was a struggle to get up at, at um, 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, but after 30 years, it sort of it eased off. So now it's, I, I set my clock at 3.30 every morning and it's quite, it's, it, I'm happily surprised it's not difficult to get up. Um, first 30 years were the worst, so just in case anyone's, anyone's worrying. Um, seriously, I'm, not, I'm kidding. That's, that's, after 30 years, it got a lot easier. So, but, uh, so I was um, uh, living in a... Before Abayagiri Monastery opened in Northern California um, in 1995, there was a small group of us, four monks and two laymen were living out on this piece of land owned by one of the people in the, the um, San Francisco group and uh, it was high up in the hills um, in, uh, on the border of Mendocino County and Humboldt County. And uh, it had some, uh, it was quite rocky. Uh, it had sort of um, grassy fields and also some, some rocky areas. And uh, we had a completely open schedule, so each of us were living in little tents. Um, or one monk was in a, a caravan. And we all had a, our individual routines. There was, no, there was no group practice except once... Every uh, every week we get together on the on the moon day. Otherwise, it was entirely up to us. So uh, to to make sh- uh, to in- encourage myself to arouse energy in the morning, I would walk down from my I had this dome tent. I'd go down from my dome tent to this cliff, and it was about a three hundred foot drop straight down uh, onto some uh, oak trees underneath. They looked kind of bouncy. You know, from, from above, but I think if you <laughs> if you did drop into them, you wouldn't bounce. And uh, it is a, 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 a very effective way of keeping a, awake early in the morning. If you go down there before dawn, sit with a, a cliff, you know, three hundred foot drop, right in front of your knees, you don't feel the slightest bit drowsy. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. but uh, these other kind of methods also, um, uh, as he says, open your eyes walk backwards. Um, also, standing meditation is a very, very helpful kind of practice. You know, during this retreat time, we have quite a lot of uh, time to meditate by ourselves, as well as uh, a group practice. And if you find it particularly difficult to, to rouse energy and be alert if you, uh, when you're by yourself, just in your own kuti or your own room, uh, there isn't the sort of group encouragement slash group pressure uh, of other people around you. Um, standing meditation is, is very helpful because uh, it's uh, physiologically um, the uh, you know there there are not that many um, uh, say uh, animals in the in the uh, in the living world that have two legs and a vertical spine. It's kind of us and the ostriches, I think, and flamingos. But the uh, the um, uh, the body ta- has to do a lot of work to stay upright and to be balanced on it, on our legs. So if you stand and close your eyes, uh, you become aware of how much work the body has to do to adjust and, and to, to keep itself balanced. And we use vision a lot to help ourselves stay upright, to balance this, this whole body on the, on the legs and keep the, spi- the spine vertical. So uh, it, uh, doing standing meditation, and particularly if you do standing meditation with your eyes closed, it r- naturally rouses a lot of energy. You have to pay a, 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 a lot of attention to the body, so it helps to, um, say, initiate a lot of body awareness, 
And also there's that fear of falling over. You're not going to fall off a cliff, but you, you, know, you might fall over onto, onto the floor. So that is a very easy and, and workable um, method. And also if you've got sore knees, then standing meditation is also a great alternative. Uh, there are many and various different methods to, um, to counteract sleepiness. But uh, <coughs> one of the, the, the key things that doesn't spell it out here so much is that uh, the, the, uh, the quality of mental dullness, sloth and torpor, tinamida, like regular sleep, it's a cyclical, uh, it works in cycles, so that if you can stop the mind getting into the dullness cycle, if you can prevent it just getting drawn into it, then um, it, uh, it, it's much easier to, to sustain alertness. If you've already sort of fallen into that, that, that dullness uh, state, uh, the, the, the cycle has already got going, then it's much, much harder to pull out of it. So uh, many of the methods that are most helpful are, uh, say, w- methods that help you to notice as that dull state is beginning. And again, uh, it's hard to do because the very means whereby you would notice the dullness beginning, uh, then they're not there because you're getting dull. <laughs> you don't notice you're getting sleepy because your, your quality of alertness is diminishing. So ways that you can recognize that the mind is drifting into a dull state are very helpful. So simply sitting with your eyes open um, and then using a visual object in front of you so that if you're in a group meditation, the back of the head of the person in front of you or looking at the Buddha image. And when the the image goes from one one single image to, to two, then you know that you're drifting off. You might not feel, I'm getting sleepy. But when suddenly there's, instead of one nun in front of you, there's two nuns in front of you, you know, those twins have suddenly appeared, then, uh, then you realize, okay, I'm drifting here. And so that that's, uh, and then if at that moment you can arouse more energy and sort of sharpen your vision and bring energy into the, into the practice, then it'll stop the mind from getting drawn further into that, that kind of a state. <coughs> so that... That's a, a very simple method that you can use pretty much in any situation, and that uh, sometimes people don't don't like to uh, have their eyes open when they meditate. Say, ah, oh, just interferes with the practice. I want to concentrate, but you know, I want to just be on the, focusing on the on the breath. But um, I do have a difficulty with sleepiness. So, uh, other things you can do is to take a a simple object, something. This is not. It's a bit large, but uh, use your hands because your fingertips are extremely sensitive. So if you hold something in your hands, like a, a piece of card or even a matchstick, will work. There's some light object. If you hold it in your your hands between your thumbs, then uh, uh, as the mind starts to go sleepy, then your thumbs will drop, and then the object falls onto your fingertips. And even though it's not very uh, heavy weight, uh, even a piece of card or a matchstick that uh, you you'll be surprised but that's something that you can easily notice so that um, and again there isn't that clear recognition of I'm getting sleepy it's like oh the matchstick dropped or you know oh, the, uh, the, uh, the bookmark dropped <coughs> so that's one of uh, or a couple of, of the many and various uh, ways that one can uh, learn to see how that uh, that works, and then if you find if you stop that that sleep cycle, that dullness 
cycle from getting underway after two or three times, three or four times, then uh, it uh, generally loses its momentum and it's easier to keep the mind alert. Any questions? Thoughts, reflections on that area? I was wondering if anywhere in the Sutta the Buddha mentioned closing the eyes. Um, for meditation? Um, uh, he, when he's giving advice, uh, actually a lot of this advice is advice that the Buddha gave to Moggallanam and Moggallanam was getting sleepy in his meditation. The Buddha actually sort of beamed himself over to where Moggallanam was, was nodding off during his meditation and, and uh, encouraged him to open his eyes and look at the stars and such like. Um, the um, the usual description of beginning a period of meditation is setting the body upright and placing mindfulness before one and then bringing attention to the breath or to the nimitta or something. Um, I don't think the closing of the eyes is specifically mentioned. Any Pali scholars here? I don't, think it, I don't think it's ever mentioned. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's implied, in, but uh, never, never specifically mentioned. No, I just practice Zen for a few years and well, we keep the eyes open. The instruction is to keep, well, not open, but just not to close it. I was just wondering. Yeah, I. Uh, uh, I, I don't think there's any kind of particular reference to the the Buddha saying the eyes should be closed, but generally that's understood as uh, for sitting meditation. That's the the usual sort of understanding is like the the eyes are closed and the attention is turned inwards to say focus on the the breath, or or particularly if there's a like the what are called nimitta meditations where you're like visualizing a, a color or a shape then that would really necessitate the eyes being closed. Or they talk about, in, with that, in those, um, using a, a visual object with the eyes open and then closing the eyes and, and then sustaining the object internally. So that, in those instances, it is talked about in that way. situation for example mm. it's very quiet and your mind becomes concentrated you don't actually need to sleep mm-hmm. in many ways you stop sleeping um, well, that can happen mm-hmm. but say in the normal days I'm a vassy there's an awful lot going on an awful lot of thinking that needs to happen mm-hmm. decision making and so on that seems pretty impossible so <laughs> what, what seems impossible? that, that kind of when you sit meditation and you, you know, you're being hit by sloth and torpor, it really does feel that actually I'm tired. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> really, that does happen, yes. How can you make the difference? Um, well, it's, ra- it's a good question, I think. But it's rather like the, um, the, the food. You know, that just that if you are paying attention, uh, to, if you kind of get to know your own system, like with with food, 
the the body has its own intelligence uh, with how much food you need, and uh, and so similarly with with sleep, the body has its own intelligence, and yeah, again, it's difficult to discern the voice of def- defilement and the voice of wisdom from each other. Yeah, it could be Mara saying, "Take a nap, take a nap. <laughs> You've been working so hard." Just, uh, but. Um, it can also be just like, like Ajahn Chah says, if nothing works, then just go to sleep. You know? And so that if you investigate that and say, well, I'm, I, I, should, I should stay awake, but then if you pay attention, you realize, oh, I'm totally finished here. And then you, uh, you realize, no, I'm, I'm really exhausted. Then the appropriate thing to do is go take a nap. You know? And uh, the... Uh, so much of it, it's not having a fixed idea of what we should do or shouldn't do, but learning what our limits are, what our what our needs are. And so, for some people, it's uh, it's it's kind of interesting when they come to to stay here. They have the idea, or the, I remember being guest monk here many years ago and saying, you know, I need to have eight hours sleep a day, and and then they're kind of worried about the routine. Like I've got to have that amount of sleep, and then. And then a few days later, saying, I'm really worried. I'm only sleeping about five hours. And I, I kind of wake up. And it, I'm even awake before the bell goes at four o'clock. And, uh, you know, it, 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 I, I need more sleep. And he said, well, if you're waking up before the bell goes, <laughs> it might be that you don't need that amount of sleep. No, but I've always needed eight hours sleep. I, my whole life, I've always needed that, you know. And you have the idea that you do. But then the actuality is that, well, the system can adjust. So, like... Uh, and and then with when the, when you have a retreat period like this, and there's a lot of, lot of formal practice, and a lot of the resting uh, aspect of uh, of the mind is happening in meditation. There's not so much um, sort of activity or agitation, and so the the body just need <coughs> needs less and less sleep, so you can get by with three or four hours quite happily, quite comfortably. But uh, when there's a lot going on and a lot of the things to be done, then getting that, that sense of, oh, you know, I'm really tired. Then to, to listen to that, to pay attention to that. <coughs> it's also interesting that um, one of the comments that Ajahn Chah made um, about sort of living in a busy monastery, with a lot going on, <coughs> was that... Uh, <coughs> He made the comment that if after the, the meal time uh, he would receive people from you know, say about nine o'clock um, through till ten or eleven, maybe midday, he said, if you can get away for just half an hour and just put your head down, so you only need about fifteen or twenty minutes. If you can just have a, have a short rest um, sometime after the meal, and then you can you can get up and you're good to go for the rest of the day. So if you if you don't manage to to do that, then then uh, uh, you find yourself just sort of dragging yourself along, you know. And that uh, so his recommendation for uh, living in very active monasteries with a lot of responsibilities is to um, to find a, a way to have a rest, not just kind of eat your fill and then go and lie down like a a stuffed hog, as they say. Uh, but rather, you know, just uh, um, in the middle, of, uh, in the middle of the day, when you you recognise, okay, this is a good time to to get away, put your head down. For myself, 
I've noticed it's uh, pretty much exactly 17 minutes. I don't know why. <laughs> it's 15 is, is it, it, I mean, if I just put my head down, then it's uh, more than 15 minutes and less than 20. About 17 minutes is my, my cycle. Okay. And it's exactly um, as, uh, as Lumpur Cha pointed out. If you just have that much of just going into sleep consciousness for a little bit and then, then coming out of it, the whole system is refreshed and can, you can carry on quite happily. <coughs> if you don't do that, then it can be a bit of a, a uh, an exercise in resolution for the rest of the day. But you know, you can do it, but um, it's a bit more of a trudge to get through the day. So in that respect, it's very helpful to, um, as a, um, uh, to, to learn how to just to rest and to not let the mind dwell on lots of thoughts and, and activities and, and to, when it's time to put your head down, then just drop everything and, and go. So I found living in Amravati in particular, that's an extremely important skill. So sometimes on the weekend, particularly if we have, uh, say, in the summertime, you have the Sunday afternoon talks at 2 o'clock. And, you know, you have to be here in the chair at 2. And I might not get out of the sala until 1.30. But I can still get back to my kuti, have my 17 minutes and get back here. And then you're fresh for the, for the talk. So... It's uh, uh, that, but that that is also um, not that we're here to learn how to sleep, <laughs> but it, it's also very useful to be able to just let your mind relax and say, okay, whatever else there is that needs to happen today, right now, sleeping is what's happening. Okay, drop everything, and to just put your head on the pillow. And um, they also have a, a helpful. Uh, saying in the, in the Tibetan tradition. I think it comes from these marathon Dhamma teaching sessions that they have. They go on for hours and hours, days and days. And it's sleep quickly. <laughs> sleep quickly. You've only got 10 minutes till the next teaching. So get out, get your head down and come back. So it's a, it's, um, but again, it's, it's, it's to do with learning your own, your own capacity, your own limits. And, and not... Um, not coming from a place of idealism, what you should be, or what uh, what you how you think you ought to be, or how you want to be, but rather you're starting with with, with where you are and, and how uh, how you're built, you know, how your sort of your system is conditioned and constructed, and then and then okay, this is my particular system. It works like this, and then given that, okay, what is the day? What's the day needing? And so you, you have the, you're starting with the reality of how you are, and then you have the ideal at the edges, rather than having the ideal at the centre, and the reality of the way you are, at the edges. So apparently, uh, that uh, it's called power napping. In the, the, uh, uh, the, um, but I think human beings have been doing this for years, and you know, decades, centuries, uh, and that um, being able to just um, recognize when you need a break and then letting yourself sort of go into a, a sleep state just to refresh the body then and then and then waking up and getting on with your with what you need to do is uh, it's very sensible and there's also one <coughs> one particular sutta where it describes the Buddha in the hot season 
um, doing exactly that. After the mealtime, he goes to his kuti and he lies down, and then Mara appears and says, look at you, you call yourself a totally enlightened master, and you're, you're lying down to sleep in the middle of the day. And the Buddha said, Mara, I know you. You know, that there's uh, <clears throat> to, uh, to lie down to rest in the middle of the day in the hot season, and to set in mind the time for awakening, uh, for awakening is, uh, none of uh, this has got anything to do with defilement. It's merely taking care of a, uh, the body in an appropriate way according to the, the time, the place, and the season. You know, I know you, Mara. And Mara disappears. But, he, but he, that's also you know, recognizing um, that that voice of Mara, like, what are you doing? You know, supposedly the abbot of the monastery, you know, lying down to, to spend all this time uh, asleep, you know, get up, think of your list of things to do, you know. But uh, that's the, the, the voice of Mara, is that the voice of, of doubt and self-criticism. And so even that was coming, that voice was arising in the Buddha's mind. But there's that clarity of like, well, no, it's, it's, it's the hot season, this is what the, the body needs, it's totally blameless. <coughs> yes. And I seem to recall there's a quote from Monfortra where he's saying something that he was at some point maybe in his early years he could for several days in a row stay awake without sleeping and then he because I think he could concentrate very much at the time mm-hmm. he could just sleep for ten minutes and kind of recover three days of sleep. So I'm wondering if you could say something about kind of substituting I mean maybe not to that extent but sleep with, like how meditation, you mentioned that earlier as well, through meditation maybe one needs less sleep, how that works, and or how one could maybe use that to kind of compensate, well, you know, not to the extreme, but how meditation can help sleep, one sleep less. Um, it, it can, I think uh, Lumpachara is a bit of an extreme case, that, uh, and I think those who, are, who were around him at that time basically said no one could keep up. <laughs> That uh, he could, um, and, and that, as as you described, you know, he could um, go into meditation for uh, you know for a little while, and then refine, you know, refresh himself, and then come out and, and uh, carry on. But um, I think the a lot of it depends on on the mind state, and that um, if the if the mind is able to just is doing a lot of sort of resting in meditation. So that, that you don't need a lot of physical sleep because usually physical sleep is like shutting down the whole system so that the the kind of defragging of the, of your disc can 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 be uh, carried out. But if your disc is not getting fragged, you know if you're not kind of creating a lot of scrambling with your emotions and your thoughts and your plans and your memories and your opinions, then you don't need so much sleep. There isn't that whole kind of um, defragging process to, uh, to use that analogy it's not necessary so the more that you can I mean like for someone for someone like Ajahn Chah you know his mind was very very clear and very bright and so that he wouldn't have had to do a lot of that defragging or decomplicating or they wouldn't need so much sleep so really just for the basic physical needs of the body he could sort of dip into a, a relaxed state let the, you know what rejigging needed to happen, then then could carry on. But he was a, a very uh, unusual case, I and mean, he could um, stay awake for days and days. 
You know, I know one of, of one occasion when he he was uh, teaching a disciple who was very um, attached to the idea that he was a good meditator and um, was kind of proud of his samadhi. And so Ajahn Shah took him on a, a road trip and he kept him awake for six days and six nights. And this, this monk who was, because uh, he, was, he was very proud of, of his abilities to, to meditate, and so he would um, uh, say on all night sittings he would quite happily just sort of sit there you know, without moving all night long and then would sort of... Uh, <coughs> would, uh, and, and would also be kind of putting himself on display. So he'd, he'd sit and meditate for long, long periods of time where everyone could see him or people knew that John so-and-so is sitting or, or, um, or you know, everyone, go, everyone else goes out on arms and he's still sitting there. And, and so uh, he was kind of attached to his uh, and was proud of his, his samadhi abilities. So uh, Lumpur Chah took him on this road trip uh, for six days and six nights and wouldn't let him sleep. So neither of them slept for six days and six nights. And so um, uh, at, the, at the end of it, um, he's just like hallucinating, he's <laughs> completely delirious. And he was sitting in the front of this, this pickup truck and uh, so there was a driver and then this uh, other monk in the middle and then uh, Ajahn Chah on the, on the other side. And this monk was kind of reeling around, like, uh, flopping all over the driver and Ajahn Chah says, wake up, you're an idiot. You're disgracing the Sangha. You're co- you're, this guy's going to crash the vehicle. And what kind of a monk do you think you are? Really giving him an earful. Like, you know, it's just shameless. You're used to, you call yourself a meditator. You can't even stay awake. What, you know, what kind of an idiot do you think, uh, do you, think uh, you, you, are, you are acting in this way? And so that um, you know, he, uh, for Ajahn Chah, it didn't seem to be much of a bother to just decide to be awake for six days and six nights. But... Uh, even for people who are accomplished meditators, you do need to blink out from time to time. So uh, I think the, um, the, my experience is that if you're in a retreat situation and it's very, very quiet and you haven't got any responsibilities uh, and the routine is, is very, very simple, then the amount of time you need meditating, you, know, you need to sleep, gets, gets less and less and less. And then also... The depth of sleep gets more and more shallow, so um, you can sleep for like two or three hours in the night, and also um, the uh, the depth of sleep doesn't need to be particular. You're not particularly even that much unconscious. You know, so you can be even be aware that you're sleeping as the body is sleeping. Um, but uh, I would say that's a lot to do with the la- uh, lack of inner complication. It's not just a nifty technique. It's like the way the mind is dealing with emotions, plans, fears, opinions, um, responsibilities, and so on and so forth. If the the mind has a very easeful and uh, and uncluttered uh, uh, attitude towards uh, all things and per, uh, perceptions and thoughts and so on, then that. Uh, the use of meditation or just um, going into those uh, those sleep states for short periods of time is uh, is very effective and, and can be acquired but if the mind is cluttered and has got a lot of stuff going on and is caught up in opinions and plans and memories and responsibilities and so on then um, it needs a certain amount of, of time and there needs that a process of deeper sleeping to just sort of shut the whole thing down so that the the system can 
defrag and re rejig itself in a in a skillful way. Um, but uh, the so the, in it's in a way it's related to the whole manner in which you um, you use the meditation to relate to to thought and activity or to sound. You know, <coughs> some people feel they can't they can't sleep unless. They can't rest unless it's really, really quiet. So, part in in uh, in a um, in this same vein, to learn how to to just let go of of, of noises, just not to be upset or irritated, or to let sound be something that's that's uh, irritating, but to develop a a strong resilience to to ambient sound. Uh, the year I spent in India uh, about. Fifteen years ago, uh, that was great for that because India is a really noisy place. And you're never going to get to anywhere that's quiet there. Maybe in a cave in in uh, in um, uh, Ajanta or something like that, sort of, uh, hidden away and in, in, buried in a cave. But uh, generally, India is an incredibly noisy place it's with traffic and PA systems and fans and just uh, just noise <laughs> everywhere all the time. So that uh, it's a that was a really good opportunity just to to learn to for meditation and and for resting just to let there be noise and not to make an argument with it. So let's carry on a little bit. Agitation and worry. So the Pali for this is udacha kukucha which is uh, suitably itchy, kind of uh, onomatopoeic quality. The, the, the word gives you the feeling of the agitation, itchiness. The fourth hindrance consists of two kinds of mental noise. Firstly, agitation, a busy restlessness of mind. And secondly, worry or guilty thoughts about the past. Only when the mind is asked to sustain attention on an object is the full extent of its habitual unrest revealed. The mad pinballing of the mind that ensues is the first great frustration experienced by the new meditator. As with other hindrances, the default remedy is to patiently bring the mind back to the object again and again until the mind is tamed. But when the mind is agitated, trying to restrain it can be a tiring and thankless task. Lumpur would caution meditators to be wary of falling into the trap of vibhava tanha, the craving to get rid of something. Rather than providing the impetus to free the mind from this hindrance, this kind of craving only made matters worse. A confused meditator asked him, So, when it darts about, I should just keep watching it? Lumpur Chai replies, When it darts about, it's right there. You don't follow it but you're aware of it. Where could it go? It's in the cage. It can't go anywhere. Your problem is that you don't want anything going on in your mind. Lumpur Man called that vacant state tree stump samadhi. That's the Ajahn Man's version over there. Water buffalo samadhi. Too. Tree stump samadhi. If your mind is darting around, know that it's doing that. If it's motionless, then know that. What more do you need? Just have the measure of both movement and stillness. If today the mind is peaceful, 
than see it as a foundation for wisdom. But people like the peace, makes them happy. They say, oh, today I had a wonderful sitting, so peaceful. There. If you think like that, then the next day it'll be hopeless. Your mind will be a jumble. And then it's, oh, today my sitting was terrible. Ultimately, good and bad have the same value. Good things are impermanent. Bad things are impermanent. Why give them so much significance? If the mind is agitated, then look at that. If it's peaceful, then look at that. In this way, you allow wisdom to arise. Agitation is a natural expression of the mind. Just don't get caught up with it. A monkey doesn't keep, spill, doesn't keep still, does it? Suppose you see a monkey and start to feel uncomfortable because it won't keep still. You begin to wonder when it'll ever stop moving around. You want to make, <coughs> you want to make it still so that you can feel at ease. But that's the way monkeys are. A Bangkok monkey, an Ubon monkey, monkeys are the same everywhere. It's a monkey's nature to move about. And realizing that is the end of the problem. If you're going to keep suffering all the time because the monkey doesn't keep still, you're on your way to an early grave. You'll even be more of a monkey than a monkey is. So this is a, a very common theme of Lumpur Chars about... Um, uh, <clears throat> the way of dealing with with agitation and so say internal noise, also external noise. That, uh, as he, uh, uh, many people will be aware of him saying, uh, it's it's not the sound that's annoying you, but rather it's you that's going out and annoying the sound. And similarly with with mental states. And so this is um, sometimes a bit, it can seem a bit unusual. It seem it can seem like oh, so you. You're just letting your mind wander, but it's, it's not really that. It's just recognizing, just as if you can hear a sound, like, okay, there is a sound, there's that noise going on, but I don't have to have an opinion about it, I don't have to feel it shouldn't be there, I don't have to, to create disturbance in myself, it's just, that's a sound, that's a, a vibration that's going on, I don't have to make anything out of it. So it's really uh, translating that into the inner world of the the inner sound of our own chattering thoughts that just it's just the the mind remembering or the mind planning or the mind creating an opinion or a, an uh, an idea a fantasy and that uh, Lumpur Cha's emphasis and so many aspects of his teaching is not so much what the world is doing the inner or the outer world but the attitude towards it so peace is found in the attitude not in making the external world, or even the, the inner world, to shut up and sit still and, and behave and be quiet. But rather, peace is in the attitude, not in the object. And so that, um, as he says, if it's a monkey, monkeys jump around. That's what monkeys do. That's uh, the way that the monkeys are. So to expect it to be different, or to feel, I can't be peaceful until all the monkeys in the forest have stopped moving around, it's kind of crazy. It's ridiculous. Um, but rather, the recognizing, okay, that's what the monkey is, that's what it's like, then it can still be doing its thing, but your mind is not creating a problem out of it. As he says, your problem is that you don't want anything going on in your mind. So if we've established that, uh, meditation means my mind is completely blank, or there's no thoughts. It's like, I can't be at peace unless there's no sound, or I, my body's got to be completely comfortable. Uh, there can't be any intruding sensation um, that's getting in the way of the meditation, then you, you're making yourself extremely um, fragile 
and uh, it means that the meditation is very, very easily disturbed. So sometimes people will arrive on a meditation retreat with a whole kind of kit, you know, the five cushions, or some, I've, I've seen people come with a, literally with a, with a kind of beach lounger, <laughs> a chaise longue. Well, not exactly a chaise longue, but a, yeah, a kind of, you know, like a sort of fold-out beach. Like, ah, oh, okay, <laughs> teach me the Dhamma. <laughs> And you think, oh, where do we begin? <laughs> you know, you try not to find fault, but it's like, oh. and then, uh, so, it, uh, but that, uh, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're going against the very, um, uh, the very means whereby you can develop real inner strength, that, uh, but there's an English word, robustness. Uh, uh, robust means you can uh, deal with many, many different things. You can, uh, you can deal with heat and cold or with agitation or, or quietness, with praise or criticism. To be robust means to be quite stable or, or strong, steady, and, and not easily uh, broken or, or, or disturbed. So that uh, um, the, uh, it's not as though Ajahn Chah is not saying that Quietness of mind is a, is a useful thing, but if there is noise in the system, <coughs> then at that moment the the skillful thing to do is to recognize oh, okay the the mind is noisy like there's a lot of uh, feeling in the body is painful feeling if we set it up that i can't be happy unless there's no pain in my body or i can't be happy unless there's any noise or i can't be happy unless all my thoughts go quiet then it's going to be extremely hard to find happiness. And when you do find it, okay, I've got it, right, everything is perfect. <laughs> and just as he says, you know, the, you're setting yourself up for, for dukkha because um, uh, today I had a wonderful sitting, so peaceful. There, if you think like that, then the next day it'll be hopeless. Your mind will be a jumble. And then it's, oh, today my sitting was terrible. And he's talking very directly from his own experience because, you know, that's exactly what... Yeah, he he did himself. Because see how okay you grasp at happiness or calmness, and and uh, and then lo and behold, um, when it's not that way, you think uh, everything's gone wrong. Well, it's 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 bad and shouldn't be that way. So this uh, little statement that he makes here: good and bad have the same value. Again, that might sound like a bit of an un-Buddhist statement. Like, well, hang on a minute, there's wholesome and unwholesome, <laughs> but. Uh, What we judge as, I mean, this is good, I want this, this is right, this is how it should be. No, this is bad, this is wrong, this is how it shouldn't be. He's talking about the way the mind evaluates. It, it creates a, a judgment. Oh, this is a beautiful carpet, this is an ugly carpet. Uh, this is uh, a, a good mind state, a bad mind state. And so <clears throat> what is, uh, he's pointing to is that we take those judgments as being something absolute, when we call it good, we, we make it into an absolute good. When we call it bad, we say it's an absolute bad. But that, that can't ever really uh, be the case. But when it's something that is, is difficult or painful, then his, uh, uh, his encouragement would be, okay, well, this is the mind experiencing a difficult, painful uh, experience. So uh, what do we learn from that? What does this teach us? And if it's agitated, if it's busy... Uh, then what, that what do we learn about agitation from that? If there's a physical pain or some kind of uh, broken limb or, or a, um, 
uh, you know, chronic ache in our back or whatever. Okay, that's that's unpleasant, but what can we learn from it? You wouldn't choose it, but there it is. And so that it's always uh, the attitude towards what we like and what we dislike and that uh, he would emphasize. And also with, with meditation states, when people would come to him and say, oh, the most amazing meditation on Paul, it's incredible, it's, it's light, my mind was filled with, with light. And he'd pick up a torch and think, I've got one too, you know. <laughs> to, um, to, it's just light, you know, no big thing, I've got a flashlight, you know, put a battery in it, click, click, and then it's light, so don't get excited about it. And similarly, it's, oh, someone was, it was terrible, like when I was in, uh, in Bodhgaya, uh, in a, f- uh, a few weeks ago, I was in Bodhgaya and I was just walking around the, the outer perimeter. Um, those of you who know the Bodhgaya temple, there's lots of different pathways uh, around the, the uh, Mahabodhi temple. So I was just walking around the, the upper pathway and uh, this young Indian woman stopped me and, and uh, said, can I ask you a question about meditation? And she had all these really horrible visions. She said, as soon as I close my eyes, I've got these scorpions coming out of my nose and these snakes and worms coming out of my ears. And, and you know, when I open my eyes, they're not there. But then when I close my eyes, that's, that's what I'm experiencing. And um, so really horrible and, and uh, kind of experiences that you, you wouldn't uh, ask for. Um, but... In the same way that uh, Ajahn Chah would say about dealing with, with pleasant or bright experiences, he'd say, well, you can know that that's what happens when you meditate. You know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I have not experienced sim- uh, similar things myself, but it's always what the mind adds to it. Say, okay, well, you wouldn't ask to have scorpions coming out of your nose or worms and snakes coming out of your ears and your mouth and so on. But... Um, that's the the perception, and it's uh, uh, and to feel it's something that's going wrong, or it shouldn't be that way, or or uh, waiting for it to be over. That's what gives it more strength or more power, and that, so that the uh, the encouragement is always to to not dwell on that good and bad, but rather, what can I learn from this? What what is this teaching? And and with that uh, that kind of attitude that sense of, of taking it a step back, I say, okay, what can we learn from this? Then even very um, uh, ex- extraordinary, wonderful, beautiful experiences or things that are very painful or difficult, illnesses or weird visions like snakes coming out of your ears. I mean, she was quite serious. I mean, it was, uh, it was, she was quite con- concerned. And, I, and um, so we talked for quite a while. Uh, but still, that... Um, I would. Uh, I feel that's that's the most kind of helpful kind of advice. Okay, this is what happens. So, what can we learn from that? Can we can we have an attitude of interest and non-attachment to it? Can we we look and say, well, this is a set of perceptions, just like the shape of a tree or the feeling of the body walking on the ground. Yeah, these are perceptions. They they are mental formations, whether they are strange or whether they are ordinary. Um, Still, there are perceptions that arise and pass, and the, the issue is, what does the mind make of them? Can we just know them as they are and not add anything to them? So that was a very, very repetitive theme of Lung Po Chao's teaching. And, and so um, when, uh, when Jack Cornfield came back after traveling around, visiting many, many uh, Ajahns and Sayadors, gurus in India and such like, 
There are all kinds of really interesting experiences to share with Lumpo Chan. And so and he'd arrive back. He spoke pretty good Thai, so he could describe a lot of these these things. And so uh, so you know, Lumpo had said, so um, so what have you been up to? And uh, uh, what have you been what have you been learning? And Jack gave him this sort of account of all these colorful, wonderful, amazing, insightful experiences and deep states of concentration and so on. And um, and after he finished his account, Lumpur Chargers said, oh, that gives you a few, a few things to let go of, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Yeah, that was the end of the discussion. It's like, big deal, you know. Get over it. You know? So, um, thoroughly unimpressed. Because also, he, he was seeing the energy behind that, like, wow, you know, look at, uh, look at, look at my car, you know, how big my, my uh, sort of fancy and... and, and uh, so polished and, and look at my go faster stripes and my chrome pipes and and so on. It's just like it's what is the mind making of those experiences? Even though they might be very wholesome or very or notable in some respect, the issue is what is the mind making out of it? And that and so whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, that uh, it's the attitude towards it that really makes uh, any experience that we have of, of benefit. Finish there.